So this next talk is basically what about liver disease do you need to know if you're going to manage patients with hep C? Um, I'm a hepatologist. Uh, I've been treating patients with hep C and other liver diseases for many, many years. Um, and in traveling around, one of the things that I've discovered is that uh, in, in the ID community, there's been sort of a resistance to thinking about the liver disease components of this with the idea that, well, it's an infectious disease, we have better and better and better drugs to treat them, let's just treat it, make the infection go away, and, and after that, it's not my problem. But it is your problem because uh, the treatment decisions do require some knowledge of the status of the liver disease uh, to get the optimal result, the, the choices of the regimen So let's start with the basic concept. What is hepatic fibrosis? It's, it's a response to an injury as part of the wound healing process. Um, and uh, I think that, uh, that we forget that there's many things that can cause excess wound healing in the liver in someone based upon their exposures. Hepatitis viruses do this. We heard a question about that. We'll talk some more about that. But specifically, it is it is non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, not fatty liver by itself, that seems to be a factor in causing hepatic fibrosis. Alcohol is a big factor, and in fact, alcohol and alcoholic disease ash is is indistinguishable histologically from NASH. There's other things. About 7 to 8% of the US population at least carries a gene that makes them more susceptible to liver disease. And uh, while those things alone often don't manifest in liver disease, they, they do accelerate processes. It's one of the reasons that all patients are not the same and don't progress at the same rate. Uh, many of the drugs we use, particularly in the setting of HIV, to be hepatotoxic and cause injury. Uh, patients have underlying immune disorders. There are a variety of cholestatic disorders. We'll talk about how those are different in a moment. And even things like excess vitamin A. We're in California where, where everyone takes uh, some sort of natural things and megadose vitamins. And, uh, and sometimes those are not good and particularly not Vitamin A is a classic example. It, it really does a great job of activating stellate cells, the cells in the liver that uh, pour out 
matrix. Matrix is spawn. And so uh, people who take megadose vitamin A end up with damaged livers and scarring. So in the world of hepatology, we divide the world basically into things that cause cellular injuries and are characterized by significant elevations of ALT and AST and cholestatic injuries, those things which, which prevent flow acids and bilirubin, and uh, are characterized by increases in alpha's GGT and bilirubin. And there are some conditions that are sort of mixed and fall in between. Um, so, so hepatocellular injury is again ALT and AST, and ALT is more sensitive and more specific than AST. Though late in the course of liver disease, for a variety of reasons, uh, actually mostly nutritional and a spurious result because of lab findings, the way the labs do the assays, AST appears to be higher than ALT, and that's a tool that we can sometimes use in some of the non-invasive markers to tell us a patient has more severe disease. Now you might say, but I saw a patient with acute hepatitis, uh, like Dave just was talking about, and, and their bilirubin was up. But you just said that, that hepatitis is a hepatocellular disease. How could that be? And the answer is that it's, it's all about what is the primary injury. So the primary injuries in most viral hepatitis situations is the hepatocellular injury. Following the injury, the cells rapidly regenerate. The liver is capable of very rapid regeneration of hepatocytes. But they don't reassociate with the bile ducts or the bile canaliculi for a period of time. So even though the hepatocyte is there, it happily says, oh, I'm going to do what a hepatocyte does. And one of my jobs is to, uh, to take in bilirubin breakdown products and reconvert it into bilirubin and uh, make bile acids. And it happily does that, but it has no place to send it to. So we end up with a release of those substances, including bilirubin causing jaundice, following the injury. Yeah, that's called, in the setting of hepatitis, a post-hepatitic cholestasis. It is not the primary injury. It's not a reflection of the injury. It's a reflection of the failure of the pneumopatocytes to reassociate with the bile ducts. And so thinking about that in a phased way, it, it's not a holostatic process. Now, that gets confusing because when you see a patient at a point in time, you see whatever their labs are, and often they don't come to your attention until they turn yellow, which means that they look like holostatic process and you have to consider that your differential with those patients. Acute and chronic. Um, so the definition of what is the line between acute and chronic is arbitrary and in fact has changed. When I started out in hepatology uh, 30 plus years ago, um, we actually used a year as the definition as we come to understand some of the underlying physiology and virology, particularly in, in processes that involve our 
viruses, we push that mark arbitrarily back to six months. If something persists longer than six months, it's called chronic disease. So, Hep A is an acute disease process. Hep B is usually acute and sometimes a chronic disease process. Hep C can be acute and frequently unrecognized, but is most often goes on to chronic disease. Uh, hep D in the setting of chronic Hep B is usually chronic. Hep E, uh, which is more common than you think, uh, is usually acute, but in the setting of HIV or solid organ transplant, immunosuppression is often a chronic disease. So we use those definitions in thinking about how we will manage those patients, usually waiting for acute diseases to hopefully resolve and not go on to chronic, and then we treat the chronic disease thing. Some of you uh, are familiar with the toxicity rating, that if you give a patient a drug, a treatment, usually for this group in the setting of antiretroviral therapy, and you get a toxicity grade. This was actually a great disservice to, uh, to the world of hepatitis because uh, the toxicity <coughs> grades were invented when uh, the Division of AIDS was starting to do some of the early antiretroviral therapy trials. And they were worried about toxicity to various organs, including the liver. So they came up with some arbitrary grades to make it easy at the, the times of upper limit of normal. And then went on to say that if it's a grade three or four, it's bad, and you should consider stopping whatever the drug is. In the setting of experimental drug, you stop the drug. In the setting of clinical practice, that evolved into Oh, if a patient has a five times the upper limit of normal grade three toxicity, we should stop the antiretroviral therapy. Um, what this ignored is that the majority of progressive liver disease actually results in people that have what we would call grade one injuries. Most patients with progressive <coughs> liver disease tend to run along with at ALTs of, of 40, 50, 60, 70, which is well within most labs, grade one level, and we ignored those for years, yet those were the patients that went on to cirrhosis and advanced disease. Um, if you are involved with thinking about drugs and drug toxicity, the more important thing, and it comes from one of my mentors, High Zimmerman, it's called High's Rule, that, that if you met the criteria following initiation of a drug, bilirubin greater than three and an AST greater than 20 times the upper limit of normal, there was a very high chance that patient would develop fulminant hepatic failure and die from it. And so, so this is actually now written into the FDA regulations of licensing of new drugs. Is, uh, is, uh, you can't have many cases of a new drug in development that violates highest rule where the drug is pulled from There's also a hypersensitivity rule. Uh, we used to see more of this before we did uh, HLA testing, before using drugs like abacavir, or when we used more deveropine. Um, but it's an eosinophilic hypersensitivity reaction. It can affect the liver and also cause the fulminant. 
So ALT is, is misused and misunderstood. It's usually the, the entry into thinking that outpatient is liver disease. And again, our clinical labs around the US have done us a disservice in many ways over many, many years because uh, they establish upper limits of normal. And for typical clinicians, um, you look at your lab's upper limit of normal, and if, it's, if a value comes in on a patient near the upper limit of normal, you kind of say, eh, it's probably nothing, let's not worry about it too much. And the further it is from that level, the more excited you get. Um, but in a uh, really seminal study done in Italy, where they took patients with hep C and biopsied them to actually look for signs of liver injury. They developed receiver operator curves based upon liver injury in ALT and found that, that the local determinations of lab normals for ALT is completely wrong concept and that in fact <coughs> the uh, normal for a man uh, is 30 or less, and for a woman is 19 or less, and if levels are above that, the patient is having liver injury. If they're having liver injury, they're probably accumulating scar in response to that injury. So there's a lot more liver disease out there that is commonly recognized by the use of routine lab tests. Okay. So, hepatic fibrosis. The type of injury determines the pattern, where the fibrosis is in the liver, and there's a few different types of injury that occur. For most diseases, the distribution of that injury is homogeneous, with slight variation, slight biological variation, but overall, if something's happening in the left lobe of the liver, it's happening in the right lobe. Um, inflammation is transient. Fibrosis is fixed. It was a concept that was had its roots in from the time we began doing liver biopsies and hepatology. But turns out not to be completely true. Inflammation is transient. Fibrosis is not fixed. Fibrosis is plastic, but just like it takes a long time for fibrosis to develop. It also goes away very, very slowly. So when you cure a patient of hepatitis C, their liver fibrosis does not just go away. If you take a group of patients that have advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis and you biopsy them 10 years later, then a proportion of those have regressed. There is remodeling possible, but again, it is not a quick process. And you already heard Dr. Lau say cirrhosis is a histologic <coughs> diagnosis. It's not a clinical diagnosis unless hepatic decompensation has occurred, and even that depends on where you're at in the world when you, when you think that. If you were in the Nile River Valley where hep C is common, the leading cause of liver failure with varices is, uh, is actually schistosomiasis in which there's no cirrhosis, no hepatic <coughs> injury. It's a pre-sinusoidal pre disease process, and the patients develop 
what we would call end-stage liver disease, but there's no cirrhosis. Dave mentioned this. I just want to show you this because and you can ignore this complex picture because it's a graphic representation of something we'll look at in actual photomicrographs in a moment. But there's different scoring systems for looking at hep C. If you read papers, if you think about what's in the literature, you need to know what scoring system there is, uh, what they're talking about. Um, so there are several. Um, and they're not the same. They don't line up. So you know, you could either be a one or a two, depending on which scoring system. It's not enough to just give a stage number when talking about hepatic fibrosis. You need to know this is a metavir two or an ishap three, and that tells you what you're working with. Depending on where you train and where you live. Different scoring systems are used, particularly in looking at liver biopsies. So for me, I typically think when I look at liver biopsies, I think about Ishak, but Ishak was one of my mentors. So I kind of, that's who taught me. Uh, Medivir is widely used in Europe. It's the easiest system to think about, and also you can collapse from other systems into it because it has the broadest category. So if you don't know what something is or which system, you can always collapse if you have a description back to a metamere scoring system. If you're if you train with Jurgen Ludwig and, and Mayo Clinic, then in the upper Midwest they use almost exclusively the Bass Ludwig scoring system. So this is what liver biopsies look like. This is four different patients. Um, and what you see is a lot of pink. Um, there are two main stains used to look at liver biopsies. One is called the Masson trichrome stain, and the other is an HME or hematoxyl and eosin stain. In general, blue is bad, pink is good for either stain. That's how you could think of it. So this is a normal liver, um, and it's a little bit subtle, but the neighborhood of the is a liver lobule. There's hundreds of thousands of liver lobules. They surround a central vein, and uh, that is the functional unit of liver. That neighborhood of the liver is made up of liver lobules. Um, and uh, there's always a little bit of blue because those are the areas where there are portal areas or central areas where there's large vessels of one type or another. Portal vein, hepatic vein or hepatic artery. And, uh, and so there has to be some strong something to hold it in place. That's what the collagen is doing. In diseases like most viral hepatitis that is chronic, we see the expansion of oral areas, and, and that would be, and, and this is an F1 becoming an F2, depending on where you looked at it. This is an F3. We see what's called bridging fibrosis. So there's bridges that connect around areas, portal to portal, or portal to central. And this is a patient with cirrhosis. So if someone says, what is cirrhosis? 
Cirrhosis is a liver lobule completely surrounded by scar. That's why it's a histologic diagnosis. If you see that, you have cirrhosis. And it's a lot like pregnancy. You're not a little pregnant. You're, you either are pregnant or you're not pregnant. You have cirrhosis or you don't have cirrhosis. When you have cirrhosis, there are implications for blood flow, and it's the changes in blood flow that lead to the physiologic features that we think of as clinical liver disease. But at its base level, every other test that we use is trying to determine, do you have this, or perhaps one of these, because together, collectively, we call that advanced fibrosis. Now, liver biopsy is not perfect. No test is perfect. And this would show you an example of, suppose that your liver biopsy in this exact <coughs> specimen was just a little bit smaller, and this is the piece that you had to look at. You would not see a completely surrounded uh, liver lobule. You would incorrectly say that this is an F3, a Medivir stage 3, rather than a stage 4 cirrhotic simply because you don't have enough sample to be able to see a completely encased liver lobule. Why don't you see a liver lobule? Well, it has to do with, with the size of the biopsies. So here are three biopsies. Uh, and this actually came from a national study looking at an antifibrotic agent trying to uh, determine if we can reverse um, reverse significant fibrosis. So samples were collected from a variety of centers across the United States. The study failed. We don't have an effective fibrotic agent. But we were able to go back and look at the data, um, try and say, what made a good biopsy? And so this is actually one of my biopsies. I like to take data biopsies. And uh, this is very adequate, it uses a wide gauge needle so you can get both length and width. This is a nice long biopsy, multiple pieces, but it's very narrow, not quite as good. Um, and this is a biopsy from our friends at Johns Hopkins. Um, now I'm specifically naming Johns Hopkins because Dave Thomas is both a very good friend of mine, the chief of ID there, uh, but also, because they send all of their biopsies, as they did studies, they send them to a radiologist who paid no attention to how much tissue they got, just did you get tissue? And in doing so, they arrived in their studies at a number of erroneous results because of the size of the typical biopsies. Um, so you you could say that biopsies are an imperfect gold standard, but they're only an imperfect gold standard if you don't get enough tissue to study. And this basically says that there's high concordance, and if you sample left and right lobes and it's big enough, greater than 25 to 30 millimeters, two and to three centimeters, then you get very concordant results between different places. And this was a very frequently quoted study from Europe, Colorado, that said basically that three centimeter biopsies were 
well-trained liver pathologists are generally always right and agree with each other. And that was shown in the Halton C trial where a team of such pathologists worked. But not all people are trained well in liver pathology. And so that's another problem with the use of liver biopsy. That, that in fact, uh, the requirements of most fellowships or most uh, residencies from pathology training gives people no more than two to four weeks of exposure to liver pathology, and people just don't learn enough to be able to adequately biopsies. So we need some other methods. In the last few years, there we have seen the approval of transient elastography in the United States. How many in this room have access to transient elastography? So still a minority. Um, transient elastography was developed in France. It spread rapidly through Europe. Um, it took a long time to get licensed in the US, in part because it wasn't as good when it was tested in, uh, in randomized trials with bi good biopsy comparison compared to what the Europeans were saying. It involves a machine uh, that is quite expensive. It shoots a sound wave into the liver and it measures the shape. So the way I think about this is um, if you've ever made a bowl of jello. So you make a bowl of jello and it's sitting in a glass bowl and you tap the side of it and the top jiggles. You get a jiggle. And if you leave that jello in the refrigerator for two to three days, the water evaporates out of it. The jello becomes hard and crusty and kind of yucky. And if you top the side of it, it doesn't jiggle or it doesn't jiggle as much as it did. That same principle is the basis behind transient elastography. That, that you jiggle the liver with a sound wave, you measure the response to the jiggle, measured in a unit called kilopascals. And uh, the, the stiffer the liver is, the less jiggle it has, the higher the number of kilopascals score it's given. And the higher that is, the more it's associated with hepatic fibrosis. So there is not a single cutoff. It is a spectrum, again because you're relating it to what is the actual finding on a liver biopsy. And so every study that looks at it and tries to develop a receiver operator curve comes up with some variant numbers. But in general, the higher the number, the more fibrosis there is, the stiffer it is. Um, typically, people for practical purposes use 12.5 as a cutoff for cirrhosis, 9 or 9.5 as as advanced fibrosis or significant fibrosis. Um, if you want to be sure, you use a higher number. So if you say, in my head, you're not cirrhotic until you're 14, then you're right. Your, your specificity for cirrhosis goes up, but you're going to miss some. So, so your sensitivity goes down. And there's overlap. The good news is that in practical terms, you need to only be asking not exactly what stage it is, but is there
there advanced fibrosis or not? Because advanced fibrosis becomes the key to the door of, I'm going to have to do some other things, I'm going to have to think about this patient differently. So anything that's, that starts to get up there above nine, nine and a half, you should starting to be asked the question, is this patient, this, I think this patient does have advanced fibrosis if you have this test developed. There is another test that is just about as good as liver biopsy, and that is MR elastography. Does anyone have access to MR elastography? So it, it requires special add-ons to uh, a fourth generation MR scanner um, that costs $100,000 to $200,000. Most centers don't have this in the city of Cincinnati. We have one of these at Children's Hospital. We don't have it in our hospital. Um, and uh, it does give you a, a measure of liver stiffness using an MR technique. It's very good compared to liver biopsy. When we talk about areas under the curve, on the receiver operator curve, 72.7 to 0.8 is considered an okay test. Maybe you would use it if you have something else. 80.8 to, to 0.9 is a clinically useful test, although somewhat imperfect. You accept it, it's gonna give you wrong answers. Anything over 0.9 is considered a very good test. And you can see that at every stage, this test compared to biopsy is greater than 0.9. So there's other markers. There's the proprietary, it was called fibro test in Europe, and it's marketed in the U.S. as FibroSure. Do some of you use FibroSure? Okay, a number of you. So this is a test that uses a series of proprietary markers put together into a mathematical algorithm based upon a, a regression model. Um, and you get scores that range from zero to one. And the manufacturer, uh, says that if it's above 0.72, it's highly likely that you have cirrhosis present. Though a number of studies have said that if you really want to know if cirrhosis is present for sure, you need to go to a level of 0.8 or greater if that's your goal is to know is this patient truly cirrhotic or not. You can see why that is, that there's considerable overlap um, between different stages. It's pretty good if you're just trying to determine, compare, is this person no fibrosis or is this person cirrhotic? Yes, it's very good at that. It's not very good in the middle stages. But if you're asking the question, does the patient have advanced fibrosis, and you set a level someplace in here around the 0.6 to 0.65 mark, yeah, it's pretty good for that, and, and it's good enough as long as you err always on the side of, I'd rather say someone has advanced fibrosis and they don't, rather than go the other way and miss advanced fibrosis because of the difference in treatment and management. If you don't have that, then you're left with simple lab tests. And there's three that are in common use. Uh, the the AMPER score, the AAR, and 
of the three, this one is is the best, the Fib4. Um, the Fib4 uses age, platelet count, AST, and ALT, so tests that are easily available from any uh, clinical laboratory <coughs> muscle patients. Age, it plugs into a formula. You don't have to know how to do the formula. You need to be able to plug it into like a smartphone and, and just say Fib4 calculator, and you can get this, this number. Um, it's, it's a little bit vague in its interpretation. The interpretation uh, in less than 1.45 is an F0, F1, so that's good. That tells you who doesn't have any fibrosis or very minimal. Uh, and these are Medivere Fs. Um, if it's greater than 3.25, then the patient has an F3 or F4 with a 65% positive predicted value. So again, not great test, but better than no test. So uh, this is the one I would typically use um, if you didn't have an availability of any other test. Uh, these are the things that, that make this test um, a little bit uh, compromised in its use. Age, as someone gets older, the assumption is they've had an infection longer. If they have an infection longer, they're gonna have more fibrosis. If you acquire an infection late, then the age thing would overstate your disease. Platelet count, platelet count is a marker of portal hypertension, as we'll see. So it's looking for portal hypertension. And AST and ALT, it's looking for a combination of inflammatory activity and the ratio. Certainly <coughs> cannot use this in a cured patient, because within weeks of curing a patient, the ALT is normal, and that means often down into the levels of 19, 20, 22, 24. So it isn't that the fibrosis just went away, it's just that there's no inflammation. People have looked at these non-invasive tests, and they do find that there's a lot of error in the middle if you try to stage in the middle. But again, at the extremes, it's pretty good in terms of telling you what's there. Yeah. What do you do? What do you do when the FIB4 and the fibro short disagree with each other? That is one of the settings where you often need to get a liver biopsy or perhaps a transient elastography or MR elastography to tell you where things are at. Other question. So if you make the decision that you're gonna treat the F3s like F4s, and there's some justification for doing that, uh, then you're fine in terms of your treatment decisions. Um, P3 
people have argued that the guidelines are written around is it cirrhotic or not cirrhotic, not is it advanced fibrosis or not. So if you follow guidelines to the letter of the, the guidelines, then you still need to be able to distinguish between F3 and F4. But you're correct. If you make the assumption that an F3 is close enough and it could be wrong with my test that it's an F4, then you treat the patient as a cirrhotic and you'd be fine. Is there any reason to go, once you treated the patient, F3 or F4, and they got an SBR, is there any reason to continue? To look at this? Yeah, exactly. So, so the non-invasive markers all seem to fall apart <coughs> after SBR. So the answer at this stage is no. Now, what is likely to happen over the next five to 10 years is that we are going to reclassify, particularly transient elastography scores, to a meaningful evidence of regression of disease as compared to a regression of inflammation, which also causes stiffness. So we already know that if you treat someone who's came in at a 13 and looked cirrhotic on a 13 kilopascals on a, on a transient elastography, you treat them to SVR, and two months later you do another transient elastography, they drop to nine or 10. Are they now suddenly F2 or F3? No. And we know this because for one reason or another, a few of those patients have been rebiopsied, and their biopsies are unchanged. So, what we're going to need is a recalibration of scores following the cure of hep C to be meaningful in terms of being able to follow for regression of fibrosis. And we're not there yet. We just don't have the data. So, Dr. Wiles said this. This shows it a little differently. Fibrosis progresses at different rates in different people for all of the reasons that we've talked about. People have cofactors and comorbidities that lead to vascular fibrotic progression, whether it's they've been co-infected patient and untreated HIV, uh, drinking alcohol, taking herbal products that are damaging their liver, uh, taking megadose vitamins, having underlying uh, other disease processes. Um, people progress at different rates, and we have no way predicting who progresses fastest, which is why if we did, we wouldn't treat with, with right now the slow progressing ones, but we don't. That's why the guidelines said treat it. And this just shows you, these are, this was a cohort from, uh, from Baltimore. They were found to have low stage disease. Uh, they were not treated. This came from the interferon era. And then just under three years later, they were re-biopsied. 25% of patients progressed at least two-stage biopsy, showing very rapid progression, extraordinary rates of progression. Okay, fat. So you saw what the typical biopsy looked like a few minutes ago. Remember the pink with a little tiny bit of blue in a normal biopsy. This is a fatty liver. So all of these are hepatocytes, which are stuffed with fat, and the, uh, 
the nuclei and the rest of the cytoplasm is pushed to the side by this fat globule. These cells are more fragile than normal hepatocytes and appear to have a slightly shorter life. So they turn over a little bit more. The liver enzymes are a little bit higher in these patients. But there's no fibrosis and there's no inflammation. This is a fatty liver. This is, this is NAFL, non-alcoholic fatty liver. This is what's common in 40% of Americans overall, um, particularly where I come from, where everyone is larger, um, plus size. Uh, and it by itself is not necessarily a disease. So there's been a lot of literature, particularly in the world of HIV, where this occurs in upwards of 50 to maybe 60% of patients in some series about the significance of this. But the answer is, we, from a hepatologic point of view, we actually don't think this is significant. This is significant. This is a patient with NASH, non-alcoholic steatic hepatitis. You see a different pattern of scarring. The blue forms a pattern that's called the chicken wire fibrosis. So it's, uh, I don't, we've so come from the farm. When I was growing up, my parents had a chicken farm. So chicken wire was what you put around the uh, around the cages, but uh, this is chicken wire. It, it forms these octagonal small uh, pieces with fine wire, and so it's called chicken wire fibrosis. Um, cells are dying. There's inflammatory cells in here. Uh, there's ballooning, and it's actually ballooning these these expanded cells not expanded with fat, but ballooning up. That's how the dying process works in these cells. And it's ballooning that's the key characteristic of NASH. So um, this is a different process, and uh, it is something we're getting more and more worried about because it is becoming more prevalent. About a third of patients that have evidence of fatty liver seem to have NASH. And the only way to tell at this point one from another is with a liver biopsy. So just as we thought we were getting away from liver biopsies, and we are, I mean, at, at our peak in my institution, we were doing 2,400 liver biopsies a year. Um, I was personally doing three to 500 a year. I've done three this year. So that shows you how the use of something like transindulastography and other markers has changed what we do for diseases like obesity. But now that we're thinking about this, we're back to thinking about biopsies of patients, yes. How about the non-invasive NASH fiber sugar? Yeah, it, it does not perform very well. You need to kind of know NASH is there, and then it does give you the staging criteria, but it's not very good for saying does the Okay, so there are two clocks of liver disease. The clock that runs from inciting cause of liver disease to you develop cirrhosis. And remember, cirrhosis is liver lobules surrounded by scar. The second clock 
is I have cirrhosis. What's going to happen to me? And the answer is about 5% per year will decompensate. We'll talk about what that is in a moment. And about 1% to 1.5% per year will develop liver cancer. And those things are not mutually exclusive. You could decompensate and develop liver cancer. This is hepatic decompensation, the appearance of any one of these things. So development of ascites, which can further be complicated by catarrhal syndrome, hepatic hydrothorax, or SPP, development of encephalopathy, leading varices, or coagulopathy, which is typically described as a PT greater than three times control, but in many of your labs, you no longer get PTs and controls, you get INRs. And INR is a standardized ratio that was used for, for use of Coumadin, and it is not standardized in liver disease, so there's a lot of arguments in the hepatology community, what is decompensated? Most people say between 1.5, an INR of 1.5 and 1.7 defines the presence of hepatic decompensation. We used to talk about the child score. You need to know about it because it's still used when we think about some of the treatments. Like, don't use this. You'll hear about it later this afternoon. Don't use this in a patient that's child B, for example. So child score is a scoring system that, that takes into account these characteristics and gives you a cumulative score. And then from that score, you classify a patient as A, B, or C. These are classifications of cirrhosis. So you don't use trials in a non-cirrhotic patient. Then you say, now I know you're cirrhotic, you're a child's egg. But in practicality, we tend to use MEL, the model of end-stage liver disease, which is replaced for purposes of staging patients for liver transplantation. We use the MEL score, which Classically, is made up of bilirubin, creatinine, and INR, though there's a modified formula now that includes sodium. Um, it's used to predict morbidity and mortality. And the numbers don't have to be terrible. This is where we get into trouble with people that have not come to this course. Because they see a patient that comes in with hep C, and they see these numbers, and they go, eh, you know, they're sort of at the upper limits of normal, maybe a little bit high. I don't like that INR, but whatever. And I know they have hep C, so I'm going to treat them. These numbers aren't terribly high, but when plugged into the MELD formula, which you can get on your smartphone, it calculates to a MELD of 17. And a MELD of 17 has a three-month mortality of 18%. Three-month mortalities of 18% in cancer, lung cancer, puts you into hospice. So this is fairly severe disease process, and yet we don't tend to think of it as such. And that's why you need to start calculating metals. So when we see a patient that we've decided has advanced liver disease, we do a metal at every visit. For your purposes, particularly if you're in an ID-ish setting, that means you need to get INRs at every visit, which is the one test that's not typically obtained. 
when do we refer for transplantation? Any hepatic decompensation is when you sit there and say, time to refer. Ascites encephalopathy bleeding, a meld greater than 10, or a suspicion that the patient has a hepatocellular carcinoma. Now that doesn't mean they're going to be transplanted at that moment. But a meld greater than 10 is when a center usually wants to start seeing a patient, start thinking about them. Doesn't mean they're not going to come back to you. It just means that, that it's time to start thinking about a partner. And that partner is not your local community gastroenterologist. So the other misconception is that every gastroenterologist is a hepatologist. They are not. Um, until 2007, there was no requirement for any hepatology training in GI fellowship, which means the majority of gastroenterologists in America have no training in hepatology. Now it's required that they spend six months in a three-year fellowship. But that's often not enough, and many don't focus on that. So when you refer a patient, particularly to these criteria, you should actually be trying to get them to a liver center where they do transplant. Okay, so advanced liver disease. Everything you need to know about advanced liver disease, if you didn't think of it, if you can't remember it, is derived from this Blood, 70% of the blood flow of the liver comes from the splanchnic circulation. The splanchnic circulation is the blood coming in from the portal vein. The portal vein is made up of the confluence of the splenic vein, the inferior and superior mesenteric veins. So what happens in liver disease? Why does that nodule make a difference? Well, if you put a dam Across here, which is essentially what fibrosis does. And then, by the way, it's not magic. It doesn't happen when you're cirrhotic. It happens as you develop fibrosis. So by F3, people start to dam the liver. Blood flow becomes limited. The first thing that happens is the spleen becomes a capacitance vessel. It gets bigger. The spleen is a dumb organ. Its job is to take out senescent cells. As it gets bigger, it gets better at what it does, not smarter about what it does. So it takes out less senescent cells. Platelet count drops, white count drops. If you're treating HIV, that means CD4 count drops, but not CD4%. Um, and red cells drop, but a little bit less. That's why those formulas that include platelets work in advanced liver disease. Because it's not the liver disease, it's the portal hypertension that causes the spleen to grow, that makes the counts drop, that drives the platelets, which are actually, in those formulas, the main component of showing that you have advanced liver disease. Blood flow is affected in the capillary. And that, combined with decreased production of albumin from the liver, affects oncotic pressures, and people begin to form ascites because they can't absorb water from the abdominal space. And like any dam, 
If you dam something, it doesn't stay just dam forever. At some point, the reservoir overflows. The spleen cannot get infinitely bigger. Though I have had patients where the spleen runs from here to here. So, so eventually the blood has to go someplace else. It has to return to the main circulation, just like you dam a creek. Eventually, water runs back around another path into the creek upstream of the obstruction. Okay, here's a patient with massive ascites. And we can see several things from this. His arms are wasted. He has sarcopenia, which is a characteristic of advanced liver disease. He has 20 plus liters of fluid in his abdominal space. He has recanalized his umbilical vein, a vein that we all have, it runs from the liver to the umbilicus. It connects to the placenta. By connecting, by recanalizing and connecting there, he has, through neovascularization, driven new vessels across the surface of his abdomen which we call a calpic medusa. That's a clear sign of portal hypertension. Because now blood is being diverted from the liver to the belly button and then back up into this arcade vessels along the surface. And also on the inner lining of the peritoneal surface. He has a large umbilical hernia, which results from just the stretch he's weakened his abdominal wall. When do you tap ascites? The first time you discover ascites, you'll always tap ascites. And you're looking to say, why does this patient have ascites? And then the part that everyone misses, every time a patient shows up to a hospital for any reason, whether or not there are symptoms, if they have ascites, you tap ascites. 20 to 30% of cases of SPP, bacterial peritonitis, are not diagnosed by any <coughs> symptoms or elevated white count, they're just diagnosed by looking to be acidic fluid. Now I often hear that we can't do it. We don't know how to do it. Or the one that really makes me want to throw up is those of you, no, you don't have to raise your hand, who send the patient to the interventional radiologist who under CT guidance sticks a needle into the abdominal space to take off some fluid at a cost of three to $4,000 per time doing. This is a wood block from the 1400s. This is a bamboo tube stuck into the patient to drain their ascites. This is not rocket science, as long as you know where to go. And the safe place to always go for diagnostic tap, regardless of platelet, regardless of PT, is two centimeters below the umbilicus, unless there's a surgical scar there. You stick a needle in, with or without the use of lidocaine. Take out 10 cc's of fluid, send it to the lab for always cell count and culture, injecting into culture bottles at bedside. Not sending it to, to the lab because you decrease the yields of it. You start the patient on aldactone and Lasix at a ratio of 50 to 20. This is not congestive heart failure. Lasix is not the primary drug. The aldactone is the drug that works because of the difference in physiology compared to congestive heart failure. 
And without going into the reasons why, you have to be patient. It takes at least two weeks between each dose change to see an effect. You need to limit the patient's salt to two grams a day. If it tastes good, they shouldn't be eating it. And then there's some other things we do as time goes on, including the consideration for large body paracentesis to make them more comfortable or waiting for the drugs to take Hepatic hydrothorax. I put this up. This is what it looks like. And again, if you're an infectious disease, you may get a consult of a patient with known liver disease due to Hep C appeared with this, and you're thinking transudates and exudates and things like that, and do I need a chest tube? In a patient with known liver disease and cirrhosis, a right-sided hydrothorax is always a hepatic hydrothorax until proven otherwise. And the reason you need to know that is that you will want to put a chest tube into this patient because you'll tap them and it will reaccumulate in two days. They have a break in their diaphragm, they're forming ascites, and every 24 hours or so, they will suck up all their acidic fluid that they make into their right lung space. If you put a chest tube in, you will kill the patient within 30 to 60 days. This is malpractice at its worst. And we see this five to 10 times a year. So uh, please don't, don't, don't do that. Esophageal varices. So this is another way of bypassing the liver. The left coronary vein, which comes off the portal vein, becomes recatalyzed. It joins with the network of capillaries at the base of the esophagus. You're not supposed to have vessels in the esophagus that are big. Following Laplace's law, these vessels get bigger and bigger and bigger, driven by increased portal pressure, because blood flow is reversed, trying to get blood back into the general circulation, bypassing the liver. If you have a cirrhotic patient, again, why do you need to know that they're cirrhotic? If you have a cirrhotic patient, 35 to 80% will have varices. Of those, 25 to 40% will bleed. When they bleed, 30 to 50% die at the first bleed. And this could be quite dramatic. In fact, it's one of the things that brought me into the field I'm in. I was an intern. A patient came into the ER, said, Doc, I don't feel so good sat up in bed and vomited most of his blood contents and then fell back and died and could not be resuscitated. It was amazing. I had never seen so much blood in one place in my life. And I said, there's got to be something that you can do to stop that from happening. So we can treat this, we can manage this, but we need to know about it. So patients with advanced fibrosis, cirrhosis, get screened for varices. If they're fine, they get screened every three years. If they have small varices, we put them on non-selective beta blockers. There's only two in the US, Natalol and Propranolol. And if they're bigger, we manage them with banding. Yeah. I'm sorry? Correct, Carvedilol. Great question. So that has combined uh, activity, both selective and non-selective. The literature overall has been mixed 
in terms of relative effectiveness, but there was just a paper out just a few weeks ago that said probably is as effective as uh, the use of lab. So, encephalopathy. So, again, blood bypasses the liver from the splanctic circulation. That means things from the gut. Those things contain nit nitrogen-based compounds. They get into the blood, they cross the blood-brain barrier. And in the brain, they act as false neurotransmitters, largely with inhibitory function. We see it by having patients put their hands out. <coughs> you put your hand out, hold it tight, tendons tight, and if they do this, and it's not instantly, sometimes you have to watch them for 20, 30 seconds, they have ascorexis. That is the most sensitive sign of hepatic encephalopathy. It is not ammonia. We do not get ammonias to follow patients with hepatic encephalopathy. Ammonias are very bad tests. So you look for this. Those patients have hepatic encephalopathy. They are decompensated. We treat that with rifaximin combined with lactulose. Rifaximin is a non-absorbable antibiotic that was first developed for trauma diarrhea. 550 milligrams of BID. Before they become, frankly, develop frank asterixis, they become inhibited. This leads to increased automobile accidents and can be measured on psychometric testing. It's called minimal hepatic encephalopathy. There's a committee that for some reason that I don't understand two years ago changed the name to covert hepatic encephalopathy which is a terrible name. It sounds like the CIA is involved with it. Um, but I still call it occult uh, or minimal hepatic encephalopathy. Why do you need to know this? Because if you suspect it's present, you have to stop your patients from driving a car. One of my patients, a very well-to-do man, um, who I followed for 15 years, treating him repeatedly for his hep C, as he progressed through various stages of liver disease, got to this stage of disease, came in and announced, I just bought a Porsche Carrera. I could go 150 miles an hour on the highway. That was bad judgment. And, uh, and it was not easy taking away his car because he was angry and upset and I'm fine and, and you need to be the adult in that situation. HCC surveillance. Every six months uh, it gets done. It is subjective experience in doing the ultrasound studies matters. AFP is not recommended by current AASLD guidelines. It is recommended in the Asian Pacific guidelines. It is used by most hepatologists in the United States. It was a Canadian who wrote the AASLD guidelines and everyone thinks he's wrong. Um, so uh, we do need to surveil patients, again, at the stage of for sure cirrhosis, but if you're unsure, advanced liver disease, every six months, HCC. So in summary, HCV is also a liver disease. You always need to ask with every patient you see, is advanced liver disease present? If yes, you need to start surveillance for varices, ascites, and HCC. 
you need to contact the hepatologist early with any sign of decompensation. And you need to manage the complications. And the reason why I've told you the things I've told you is that in most transplant centers, it is not an instantaneous call and the patient is in. In our center, the average time to get into our transplant clinic is two to three months. And the reason for that is a combination of things. One of them is because there's a complex patchwork of insurance for transplant with, with recommended centers for different insurers for different reasons. It's not all about quality. In fact, it's mostly not about quality. It's usually about cost. Um, but there is a window. And so it's not that you are going to become the primary manager of this patient's liver disease. It's that even when you recognize it, it's important to recognize it, and you send the patient, you still are going to have a period where you can't delay the management. You need to start thinking about it. And that's what this is all about. Not how to become a hepatologist, how to know what you need to know to get the patient to the hepatologist at the right place at the right time. I'll stop there. Thank you. Patients become cirrhotic, 
the flow in the portal vein becomes more and more sluggish, and they're very susceptible to thrombosis. So, um, if you have near complete thrombosis, there's no portal flow, and that drug doesn't get in the liver at all until it recanalizes. So, so this is where, again, this is, it is not absolute. This is why people want absolute lines, and there's not lines. There are multiple human variations in blood flow into the liver and the availability of other vessels. Some people have natural splenorenal shunts. So, for example, if, if someone in this room probably has a splenorenal shunt, where there's already a connection between the splenic vein and the renal vein, and blood returns through the inferior vena cava from the renal vein. Uh, not everyone recanalizes their umbilical vein. Not everyone has a open or recanalizable uh, left coronary. So the manifestations of end-stage liver disease are different in different people. And Portal hypertension in some people begins to develop probably at late stage two, early stage three. But it's not clinically relevant in most people until you're fairly far along. So again, it's a, it's a continuum. Stage fibrosis, is there a role for checking with respect to the lab? Um, I don't think so. I, uh, I think that, that any 
probably reasonable, but uh, you're saying in addition to another test? This is the last. Right, right, right. So, but you said, is there a reason to use it too? So in addition to what? So you do your routine lab to do a fiber spread, and you do a fiber spread too. I you see. might get an empty tissue instead of an empty one. Oh, because you want to get a different answer. Sure. Well, that's a different question. That's that's management of insurance companies. You're staging for the purpose of gaming the system, and of course it's reasonable to do that. In fact, my my uh, nurse practitioners are so good that they basically say when we do a, uh, a fibro scan, a transatelastography, you know, is there a particular score you want? They can make it appear at any score level. And then they tell me which one was done correctly and what it really is. But that's, again, that's gaming the system in a setting where I wish we didn't have to do that. Another one here, yes. About the fibrosis staging, um, we used the fibroskin for NASH for C or FD, and I noticed that there's a table, and with different, if you get a number, and it gives you a different stage. I mean, if you, I mean, most of the time it's like right in the gray area. Why is that? So, so what you're referring to is that if you went on the internet, you looked for, for what are the cutoffs for scores? Different diseases have different cutoff scores. The reason is that, that the cutoff scores have been developed by individual groups doing some cohort of patients and usually comparing it to liver biopsy. So if I had 100 head B patients I might, and I just got my fiber scan, I would do 100 fiber scans and 100 patients that I biopsied, and I would come up with within that sample of 100, a receiver operator curve that would say, no, 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 not at 12.5 is my cutoff. My cutoff in those patients is 11 for cirrhosis. And I would publish it. And you'd have a different score. I think that's the main thing that's happened is that most of the literature was developed from patients that, uh, that have uh, just different cohort characteristics, and so there's, that's one of the reasons there's not a firm cutoff. But there is a second reason. So in a disease like NASH, fat, you saw the picture of the fatty liver, the fat fills the hepatocytes. That makes the cell stiffer. A stiffer cell inherently looks like more fibrosis, if that's what you're thinking is the outcome measure, but instead you're measuring stiffness based upon fat. Iron does the same thing. If you had a patient with genetic hemochromatosis filled with iron, their stiffness is quite high. So it, people have come up with different cutoffs for different disease states. Um, and some of them are valid because of the difference in the physiology of that disease state affecting liver stiffness. And some of them are simply a reflection of different cohorts that were studied. 